If you would, please turn open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 58. That'll be my passage for tonight. And if you're not familiar off the cuff what uh, scripture passage that is, that's David and Goliath. So tonight we are going to be dealing with a very familiar passage, uh, David and Goliath. And uh, as I was trying to decide what to preach for this evening, um, I figured that, uh, that that would be a solid one to exegete. However, it's so familiar that that often can be a snare to us um, so that you can almost liken it to um, a comedian being asked to speak to a convention of comedians. Okay, what joke do you possibly tell uh, that, that they haven't all heard before? Likewise, if I'm preaching to you in uh, David and Goliath, okay, about that particular story, what could I possibly say to you that you haven't already heard, right? Because it's a story that we've known from birth, uh, well, from very young at least. And, uh, you know, it's something we read in child books and something we're taught as we get older and older. And by now, you've probably heard enough of David and Goliath thinking that you, you know the story pretty well. Um, however, my goal tonight with that in mind is not going to be to try to interpret the passage in a way that's somehow new or novel that you've never heard before. I don't think that should be my goal ever, um, but rather just to take a story that uh, we might be familiar with and to, to just kind of ask you to set that aside for a second and try and look at it anew. Because the problem can often be that we know a story so well that we forget to um, look at it seriously and we just kind of take it and, and sit back and say, oh, yeah, I know this, and don't let it affect our hearts. Um, and we need the Spirit to apply this one to our hearts because we put up walls. We think we know it, and we think we know the application. So um, before we start, let's look to the Lord in prayer and uh, ask him to break those walls down for us. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this night. Thank you that we could come and, and uh, study the Word of God together. I just ask as we study this very familiar story that you would help us to break down any walls that we might be putting up, of just sitting back and saying, oh, I know how this goes, uh, and uh, not listening as intently as we might otherwise. Uh, God, help us to really look into this passage as your word, as your unchangeable, perfect word, uh, your powerful word that can slice us in two like a sword, cut through to us and, and, and reveal things in our heart that we didn't see before. And God, help us just to see the word in that way so that we leave a changed people and desiring of doer, doing greater things of service for you. So I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So again, that passage is uh, 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 58. Um, and this is certainly is an epic story. Okay, um, In YF, I hear the word epic a lot. Like I don't know if that's sort of getting out of touch now, but at least I used to hear teens say, well, that's really epic, what just did. I don't know why that's like an adjective to describe stuff, but something epic is really cool and just amazing and beats everything else that you've seen before, okay, in youth lingo. And so epic is a big thing. And right now, um, in our culture, the idea of something being epic is, is even more important to people around us who are involved in postmodernism and want to see the big picture, like to know the whole story. That's why um, movies like The Lord of the Rings are so popular. That's why you're seeing so many more movies come up in trilogies, because we don't like to just see a part of the story. We like to see the giant, the giant story, the, the whole epic tale, you know, and that really appeals to us. And, and this certainly is an epic tale, maybe not in its length, because it is just one segment of a larger story. However, it's epic in the sense that we know it really well. It's a really powerful, motivating, inspiring story. It's, it's a great one to read. And so um, we, can, we can see this by the fact that it's, you know, 
come down to our, our children's books and all that. It's one we readily tell to our kids and grandkids. It's one of the first ones we jump on. Okay? And, and so, as we look at this, um, I'm, I'm always asking the question, what's the main point? Okay? What's, what's this passage trying to teach us? Well, as I happen to be reading at this time, perhaps God will you know, strike me in a different way another time. But for this particular time, as I read the passage, I saw three major obstacles um, that David's faith overcame in this particular story of David and Goliath. And, uh, and that forms the outline of my message tonight. Um, don't worry, I don't have 17 more points for you this evening. Okay, uh, just, just three things. Um, David's faith overcame the size and might of his opponent, Goliath. That's the first one. Second, David's faith overcame the opposition he faced in his own family. And third, David's faith overcame even King Saul's lack of faith in God's ability. So that's how I'd like to go about the story tonight. Um, and, and remember that. That's our outline, okay? Uh, as we're reading through this, three major obstacles. Um, the giant himself, David's family, and King Saul. All right? So let's break this up into sections. We'll read some of this and then look at it and examine it. And then we'll continue on with section to section through the story. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. Again, if you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath your, your pew, pew seat. Um, you can grab one there. But starting in verse 1 of chapter 17, we read this. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs, and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in the battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of the Ephraimite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight other sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. And the three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went were Eliab, Eliab, the firstborn, and the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. And David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. And the Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. All right, let's stop there. So, here's this Philistine champion named Goliath. And um, as these people talk about uh, 
I mean, as the story talks about David and Goliath, uh, it's important to remember that this story is really a story about God's power and David's faith in God's power, not about David's own power. Okay, so let's just get that out of the way first and foremost. This isn't about how David was some skilled uh, military man and was able to uh, prevail against this giant or that somehow through positive thinking he was able to overcome this giant or that somehow through luck he was able to overcome this giant. It's not a story about any of those things. Okay, it's a story about God and his power, of course. But here is the first challenge to David's faith in God's power, that man, Goliath. And as we read, Israel and Philistia are at war, a war that's been going on for a while now. And in this particular battle, there is a standoff. No one from either side is moving, and the Israelites in particular are waiting to see what is going to happen next. So you can imagine there is a valley. On one side is one army. The other side, they're just sitting there waiting, waiting for somebody to make a move. Something's going to happen. There's going to be blood spilled, but they just don't know who is going to move first. Okay, And then the Philistines come out with this champion fighter named Goliath. And they propose that the battle should be decided by a fight to the death between their champion and Israel's. Whoever wins becomes the masters. Whoever loses becomes the slaves. And as for their champion, the Philistines have chosen this man. Of course, you can imagine as we read the description, the Israelites are terrified out of their minds and with good reason. Verse 4 tells that Goliath was six cubits and a span tall, uh, which would have made him almost ten feet tall. That means that he would have been able to jam a ball, if he were a basketball player, flat-footed. Okay? He wouldn't have even had to stretch his toes to be able to do that. That is totally unheard of. Um, we've only been able to document tall men and women um, in recent history. And the tallest recorded man that is still alive is a man from China. He's only eight feet and one inches tall right now. And the tallest man ever confirmed in history was somebody, I think, back in the 1940s who lived uh, to eight foot 11 and then died at age 22. So Goliath is about 10 feet tall. He is at least a foot taller than any of these recorded men that we have. And he's just enormous, okay? So we've never seen anything like it. Even the tallest recorded people we have in the past century, nothing in comparison. And if that wasn't enough, okay, so you have this tall man, right? And maybe, I don't know, me standing up on this this platform here gives a little bit of perspective if my legs extended down to the ground floor where you are. This is kind of like the height a little bit, or maybe even not that. But if that wasn't enough to frighten somebody... Uh, Then we see the kind of armor that he is wearing. It says he wore a bronze helmet and a coat of armor weighing about 125 pounds. And his legs were protected by all of this armor as well. Now, 125 pounds is about uh, 120 pounds more than I can lift. Okay, so um, the fact that when I read this, the weakling that I am, um, this this means a lot to me. Okay, the fact that this man can walk around with all this on his shoulders and not be affected at all. Okay, that gives me an idea as to his power and his strength. So he's not just a tall, thin guy. He's a tall, strong guy. He carried a bronze javelin between his shoulder blades and a spear heavy enough um, that would have normally required two people to carry it. Okay, Um, the spear, the head of the spear weighed about 15 pounds. That's just the head of the spear. Besides all of this protective equipment, Goliath wore 
he also had an armor bearer who went ahead of him to hold up his shield. And then he had, probably had a sword and all other kinds of things on him. All this to say that the Israelites were terrified by this Philistine giant. And they were so frightened that nobody, of course, was willing to go up against him. I don't blame them. Who would? Okay, when you see this just purely by man's standards, if you think without any kind of divine intervention, how are you going to beat a man like this? Okay, Um, and every morning uh, and evening for 40 days, Goliath tried to provoke somebody to fight him and he terrorized those who did not. Now, um, as we're talking about Goliath and David's faith in God's power, it's important to note that Goliath, uh, when he first makes these these shouts, David isn't on the scene yet. He only comes out later in the story. But you can imagine uh, how scary this would have been potentially to David when he did see him. Eventually he did come out. He did see everything everybody else saw. And certainly this would have been a challenge to David's faith. Even more than this, just look at how Goliath is described in comparison to David in verses 12 through 15. Look down at that. Um, In contrast, nothing is said about David's stature, his strength or his weapons. We are simply told that he is the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, um, somebody from Bethlehem in Judah. Uh, We're further told that Jesse is a very old man during the years that Saul reigns. And we're told that David's three oldest brothers, um, they're they're the same that are mentioned in uh, chapter 16, verses 6 through 9. They've gone to war with Saul and that David is left at home uh, to care for the sheep. So, If you look at those details in contrast, okay, you have a 10 foot giant, um, an experienced warrior with with thick armor that weighs 125 pounds. He's got weapons that are heavy as well. And then on the other side, you have this young, inexperienced lad with no real real, uh, weapons, excuse me, who is really just the messenger boy for his father with uh, nothing really in the way of fighting experience as far as battles is concerned. Uh, all he does, as far as we know, is just play the harp in his spare time. Okay, so if you had to wager who you think is going to win this fight based on the details that we know without anything else, who would you who would you tend to go with? But of course, as we all know from the story, when David arrives on the battle scene, he knows uh, Goliath's full physical might and he knows his own lack of it. Yet, despite this. This first big obstacle to his faith, David still believes in God and trusts that the Lord could give him victory if only he had the courage to step out and defend God's honor. And that's the first challenge that David doesn't allow to sway him. So I said there are three. That takes care of our first. The second uh, comes, unfortunately, in the form of his family's lack of faith. So turn your heads back to the, uh, the, the scripture passage. We're going to go on from verse 17 through 30. It says, then Jesse said to David and his, David, his son, excuse me, uh, take now for your brothers an ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look for the welfare of your brothers and bring back news for them. For Saul and they and all of the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning. And he left the flock with the keeper and took their supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp where the, uh, while the army was going out in a battle array and shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. 
Then David left his baggage in care of the baggage keeper, and he ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistines from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words. And David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw this man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him and with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his older brother, heard uh, when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David when he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left these few sheep in the wilderness? He said, I know your insolence and your wickedness of heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him into another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. Okay, let's stop there. I want you to notice something. That there are two members of David's family who in this passage don't seem to have a whole lot of faith in what God can do through David. His brother, yes, but also his father. It's easy for us to see how David's brother puts him down. That's pretty apparent from the words he speaks to him. But we often miss the implicit attitude of Jesse, his father. Notice the following. Jesse didn't send David to participate in any battle. He wanted David to deliver the supplies to his brothers, uh, to speak with them briefly, to hear how well the battle was going and how they were doing, and then hurry home with the news without getting involved in any way in these, you know, these, uh, these wars. And as we learn a few verses later, David has had plenty of experience, at least in fighting lions and other ferocious animals tending the sheep. But it never enters Jesse's mind to send David out for battle. In his mind, he's not qualified. And he doesn't believe that there would be any value in sending him out. One could imagine that if Jesse had heard about this Goliath fellow, he would not have wanted his son David to get involved. But yet, on the other hand, we see that he involves his other sons. And so we see a great inconsistency here about how he believes some brothers to be experienced uh, just because of their age, when in fact David would have been experienced in a way just from all of the uh, times he had to fight various animals from his experience as a shepherd. Yet his father, Jesse, doesn't see it. In a similar and perhaps more demeaning manner, we then turn to David's own brothers. And they don't even take him seriously at all in this fight against Goliath. We see in verses 28 through 30, um, Eliab's words for David. Now, again, it's important for us to remember that among Jesse's sons, Eliab is the oldest and uh, David is the youngest. And when David comes asking his brother the legitimate question of why no one stands up to Goliath, we see that Eliab dismisses David and accuses him of coming on the battlefield for all the wrong reasons. Specifically, we see he accuses David of wanting to be a spectator at the battlefront for his own entertainment, uh, not unlike if you were going to a circus, at least in the mind of his brother. Eliab then attacks David by accusing him of forsaking his responsibilities, 
uh, with respect to the job of carrying his father's sheep. And he attacks David for abandoning the flock and adds insult to injury by adding this word, a few. You see it says in verse 28, just a few sheep. Uh, So he's suggesting there that David's task is not only relatively uh, small by saying that you just have a few sheep to take care of, but also when you read into the meaning of that, that, that's just unimportant. Not only do you have just a small task, but you really are not important in the larger scheme of things. And that's the kind of attitude he shows to his brother. But the content of these attacks don't really matter. Really, the reason Eliab is being so hostile, if we read into this passage, is because David has just revealed his brother's own weakness of heart in not being willing to stand up for God's honor. Look back at verse 26. And and this verse always strikes me. It says, uh, this is David speaking. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? On one hand, when you read that, he's just asking a general question. Um, Who is this guy? What business does he have um, calling out in this way? But I think also in that question, um, David is almost saying, why hasn't anybody challenged him? Who is this person that he thinks he can just go and taunt God? And why are none of you doing anything about it? Eliab doesn't like that feeling of conviction. And so I think he lashes out in totally unrelated ways. And I think you can see that in your own experience. Uh, if, if you ever come to somebody uh, with a confrontation of sorts, something that they're doing that you know to be wrong, that you call them on, um, have you ever have it happen to you uh, that when you point that thing out, they lash out at you, they attack you, perhaps in unrelated ways, uh, all because they don't like that feeling of being convicted? I think that's a common thing for us to experience as well. And that's what's going on here with David. Um, but you know what? We, we shouldn't minimize, uh, on the other hand, what Eliab does to David. He's bullying him, bullying him and in a pretty severe way. And under normal circumstances, if a young person is bullied like that, they're likely to just end up being discouraged and walk home. Okay? I mean, I, I know that in, in one's teenage years, if you are bullied heavily at school or just by friends or people who claim to be your friends um, in any context, usually that's, that's a hard period of life to have that happen to you. And, and when that happens, it cuts deep. And usually that can result in somebody just drawing back um, from everybody and, and being really depressed and, and that really taking a toll on them. Don't forget that David's very young here. Okay, and if we just think about the way he could have reacted in terms of the way you and I react or the way people could react at that age in today's day, uh, you recognize that that is a pretty severe thing. That could have really discouraged David from continuing on as he planned. He could have just stopped right there and said, you know what, brother, you're, you're right. Uh, I don't have any business being here. Um, I'll just go back home. But he doesn't do that. His brother tempts him to, to not get involved in this Goliath thing, to not get involved in defending God's honor, but David refuses. And that's the second obstacle to David's faith in God. And yet he perseveres. He makes defending God's honor more important than his own honor in his brother's eyes. That's the second obstacle. But there's one final obstacle that David's faith overcame, and ironically, it was the lack of faith on the part of Israel's king, King Saul. Okay, so, so far we have the first two obstacles, just to review. We have the obstacle of the Goliath 
man himself. We have the obstacle of his brother's discouragement and his father's discouragement implicitly. Now we come to the king, the king of all people. It's quite disappointing as we read, starting in verse 31 to verse 39. When the words which David spoke were heard, then they told them to Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And then Saul said to David, you were not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him. You were but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and took the lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose against me, I seized him by the beard and struck and kill him, killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with his armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And so David took them off. So here we find that this last great challenge to David's faith was King Saul, in fact. If you look at David's encouraging statement at the beginning of that section, verse 32, you see he says, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. I find it rather ironic that this young man, David, okay, a shepherd, is reassuring Saul, the king of Israel. It's like he's saying, don't worry, king, I'll take care of this Goliath. Don't you worry at all. And it's actually quite embarrassing for Saul, as he's supposed to be Israel's spiritual leader at this time. So contrast David's statement of assurance with Saul's response. For even though David is showing great faith, very much from the beginning of their conversation, um, Saul says in return, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him. You are just a youth while he's been a warrior from his youth. You see, Saul fails to see what David sees, that the point is not uh, how strong he is, but um, the fact that God's name is being challenged. What's on David's mind and the words he spoke in verse 26 is this. What will be done uh, for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Okay, Uh, from that verse, you see that to David, it doesn't matter how strong he is. What matters is that God's honor is being challenged and all of Israel should be standing up to that. Um, But nobody is not even their king. You would expect that maybe uh, King Saul would be the one to go out and fight this man, or at least he would have the courage to send his best fighter out to him. But King Saul seems uh, not eager in any way to to be involved in this battle. And when anybody dares to go against Goliath, he even discourages them. Now, on one hand, I could see why Saul is concerned for David. He's just a young man, of course. He has no experience in battle technically. And Goliath has fought many battles. And it seems he's won every single one, right? Because he's still alive, okay? So he's apparently fought many battles, and by virtue of the fact that Goliath is still here, means he hasn't lost one. So that's pretty frightening. 
And I could see why Saul would say these things on one hand. But yet, as king, in an even greater way, he should be first concerned about God's honor, like David is. And that should overwhelm his thoughts at this point, but it doesn't. Now, some might point to verse 37 and say that Saul finally gets behind David by saying, uh, may the Lord be with you. But even there, Saul does not fully trust that God will give him the victory, for he insists on David taking uh, his armor. Okay, so he says, may the Lord be with you. But perhaps you've heard people say things like that to you in a way that they're not really behind you. They're just kind of saying, okay, whatever, you know, may the Lord be with you if that's what you want to do. Um, you've heard people tell you good luck. Okay, if you're going against immeasurable odds and they just say, all right, well, if you're going to be so foolish, good luck with that. <laughs> I, I've heard people say that a lot. Good luck with that. All right. That's essentially, I think, what Saul is saying. He's saying, that's great. May the Lord be with you. Good luck with that. But I don't see how it's going to happen. So Saul tries to give him his armor. And um, and that actually uh, seems kind of silly to me, because honestly, OK, in, in Saul's mind, how is this even making sense? All right. David is this young man. From his perspective, he's just a shepherd. He doesn't have any experience. This Goliath is huge. He's 10 feet tall. He's got this enormous armor. He's got these massive weapons. What is a little bit of armor going to do for David? Okay, that's like putting that's like putting a football helmet on a dog to fight a grizzly bear. Okay, what in the world is the football helmet going to do to stop the, the, the grizzly bear from just mauling that dog? Okay, um, it's really not going to do anything. At all. And so throwing a little bit of armor on David, while it may seem like, oh, well, Saul's trying to help him out. In the larger scheme of things, what is he thinking? How is he thinking that's going to make any difference? Maybe it would keep David alive for like a few more seconds. Okay, maybe in the first blow, he would get hit really hard, maybe not stabbed right through. But after a few more blows, I'm thinking he's, he's still going to be done with. Okay, if this is all just in human standards. The armor is not going to really make any difference. OK, so let's just get that out of there. And uh, and and David sees that and he decides to not uh, to wear it. Usually when you have children's stories, you see um, this picture, you see this illustration of David. And it's almost as if the armor is like 20 times his size, as if the problem is the armor is too large for him. And some have taken this passage to mean that that the armor being given to him is just enormous. And he's just this little kid. OK. Two problems with that. Number one, David isn't just a little kid. Okay, he's not like an eight-year-old. So let's get that out of our minds. All right, he's in his teens at least, maybe in his early twenties, uh, but he's not a little kid. Secondly, it doesn't even say to us that the armor was too big for him. He said that he hasn't tested them yet. In other words, David wasn't used to them. He never went out in battle before with armor on him, and it was kind of awkward, and it kind of weighed a lot, and it you know restricted your movement a little bit. And so David says, listen, I'm I'm not trusting in my own strength here. And besides, if I was, this armor isn't even I'm not even used to this. I've never fought with it before. This is only going to be a hindrance to me and not a help. So we should get that picture out of our minds of this enormous armor over a little David. It's not that it, maybe it fit him. Maybe it fit him just fine. The problem was he, he wasn't used to it. And then in the even larger picture, he's realizing that this doesn't matter. This is not what it's about. OK. Um, this isn't going to help me win the battle. It's not about my strength. Um, I'm trusting in the Lord and he is going to be the one that wins the battle for me, not this armor. It's just another expression of Saul's uh, lack of faith. 
And here we see this is the third uh, possible um, obstacle for David's faith. Here Saul almost persuaded David to trust in something else. Um, but even here, after all of the king's influential words, okay, this is the king he's talking to. And, you know, if the king tells you to do something, usually you do it, okay? And, but, but the king's words are not wise in this case. In fact, they are words that take away from faith and reduce one's confidence in God. And despite the king's influence, despite all his power and wealth and the fact that on, under normal circumstances, somebody would follow the words that he said, David did not allow himself to be swayed by this. He said, you know what? Thank you, but no thank you. I'm not going to take your armor. And even though you don't believe that God can accomplish this, I believe he can. And I believe that despite the odds, God's honor is worthy of being defended. And that's something that the king should have recognized anyway. Well, in conclusion, what do we do with this? We've talked about these three obstacles. Um, I don't need to tell you uh, in detail what happened to Goliath, of course. You know the story, how it played out. Uh, Through God's enablement, David killed him with just a stone and a sling. And the Philistines ran in fear and the Israelites emerged triumphant. And, you know, after uh, looking back at the story of David and Goliath, uh, we might look at it as something unique, something very unusual, something we don't see often. But really, it's not. It's really just an example of what happens when a servant of God such as David trusts wholeheartedly in the promises of God. David, more than anyone on the battlefield, remembered the promises of that God made to his people years before. And so we don't have to look at it specifically and say this is just for him and for him only. There's some principles we can draw out of this, some very real ones that can encourage us as well. And that is, in the larger scheme, all David did was just remember God's word. He remembered God's word. Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 4 says, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. And now it shall come about that when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people. And he shall say, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight, to fight against your enemies and to save you. And only a few verses later in that Deuteronomy passage I just read for you, God instructs the Israelites to identify anyone who is faint-hearted so that he will not undermine the faith and confidence of his brethren. And through David's situation, there were at least three opportunities where he could have become one of those people, one of those faint-hearted individuals. It could have been when he saw Goliath. It could have been when he was bullied by his brother or just not regarded as much by his father. Or when he was almost dissuaded by King Saul. And had he focused on any of these three things he would have taken his focus off God's promises and character and lost heart. But that wasn't the case. And so it's important for us to hold on to God's promises. And that leads us to another deeper application. We noted how David uh, had confidence in God, but Saul doubted. Isn't it interesting that when Saul leads, uh, such as uh, in other passages, if we were to turn back to 1 Samuel 13, uh, when Saul led in that particular instance, his troops didn't stand strong. They fled. And they scattered. And in the case of Goliath's battle, we saw in uh, verses 10 and 11 that Saul's soldiers were frightened because Saul himself was terrified. Okay? Um, Goliath said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. And then in verse 11 it says, On hearing these words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. 
In contrast, David, a lowly shepherd boy who was too young to be a soldier, comes along because of his faith and courage, inspires others to trust in God, to work through him, and to kill Goliath and give Israel the victory. And, and you notice there's a long list of heroes among Israel's soldiers that's found in 2 Samuel 23 after David becomes Israel's kings, a king. And, and there are many mighty men of valor under David's leadership to such a great degree that uh, the faith and courage David personally demonstrated seems to be passed on to these men. Um, and if you read that passage in, in 2 Samuel 21, you see that there are many other Goliaths that come along, and all of David's men with David kill them as well. It came about in verse 18 of that passage. It came about that there was war against the Philistines, and there were some individuals who were descendants of the giant. And there was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elihan, the son of Jeroragim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. This is a different one. And there was war again at Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he had been born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were born to the Goliath in Gath. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So it's neat because it's almost like the, the matter of killing giants becomes routine after David starts in this manner. And once David stands up to Goliath, these other mighty men of valor take on Goliath's family members. Uh, David's courage is contagious, just as Saul's cowardice was contagious. So the application for us is that courage can be contagious. Depending on how you lead, it can influence the faith or lack of faith of others. There are going to be all kinds of obstacles uh, that... Uh, would challenge us in our faith to trust God. David faced at least three. He faced fear in the form of a ten-foot warrior. He faced intimidation in the form of his brothers. And he faced doubt, doubt from King Saul, who should have been his spiritual leader. A day may come where the Holy Spirit prompts you to do something that you know to be right from God's Word. You might have an intimidating person who pressures you not to do it. Or you might have somebody like David's brothers question your motives. Okay, you might want to do the right thing and, and they try to question what you're doing. Or you might even have somebody that you look up to as a spiritual leader instead come down and discourage you rather than encourage you in doing right. But no matter what happens from this point forward, if you are seeking to honor God's name and follow his word, don't let these things discourage you in your walk with Christ. I encourage you to have this courage like David. Stand up for God's word. Trust in him. This passage doesn't promise us that you'll always have a glamorous victory like David had over Goliath, but it does teach that God will be pleased if you put his glory and his honor first. So the application is, may defending God's glory be our utmost desire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that we are so familiar with, often uh, too much, uh, too familiar with. Uh, God, help us to look at David as somebody that we should model our faith after. God, help us, above even just uh, admiring a man, uh, may we see your power and your might displayed in this story um, and, and be drawn to it, uh, be encouraged by it. May we see that it wasn't David that beat Goliath. May we see that under his own circumstances he would have lost. By his own strength, he would have lost. 
by his own power, Lord, he would have been defeated. But God, we see in this something greater, that your power is greater than any might of anyone around us, and that defending your honor is more important than any shame we might face from somebody discouraging us, whether that be in the form of family members or somebody we even look up to as a spiritual leader. God, if we come in contact with any kind of discouragement of this type, help us not to be discouraged. Help us to, in every circumstance, when your name is being challenged, to stand up and fight for it. Help us to honor your name uh, whenever we speak, whatever we do, whatever we think. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.